Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And today, I'm having a gas with Alex Grieve and Helen Rhodes at BBH London. Thanks for giving your time to us today. Uh, what for, I guess we'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what the rhythm of conversation is going to be here, whether it's turn-based or both jumping in, whatever you want. What's the pace of life like here at the moment? I think we're still in the mad rush where everything's getting made. Okay. <laughs> I think we are. It's that thing where you think you're nearly at the finishing line, but it's still tantalisingly far away. But, yeah. I mean, it's, it's good. We're all slightly too busy, all a little bit tired, but uh, the end's kind of in sight. The Christmas meal is beckoning. Yeah. Just a few more hard weeks to go. When's the Christmas meal for BBH then? I don't know whether there's an official kind of meal at BBH. We kind of got various parties. I was thinking more around the kind of the actual, actual Christmas Day. Sorry. Meal okay. Like that, <laughs> got you. Yeah, I know what you mean. But people aren't aiming work on Christmas Day. It's not what you're saying. No, they're not. Yeah. What, aren't they? We Maybe. stop on Christmas Eve this year. <laughs> yeah. We could always launch that as an announcement. Yeah. Just <laughs> round off the year. If you come yeah. in. Hmm. You know, um, this year, um, the consumers are very savvy. And... Um, people have uh, noticed that all the Christmas comms this year have a very specific message, which is uh, there's not as much money out there at the moment and people's wallets have been squeezed. Uh, so we're here for you to make things easier and more affordable. Um, I spoke to Sean McIlrath a couple of months ago and he said, you know, that the, the, the sales were sort of softening earlier in the year, clients could see it coming. When did people start briefing for Christmas saying this is going to be the message this year? Were there other ideas in the pipeline and then it changed or was it always going to be this? I think having worked on um, the Tesco Christmas campaign, I think there was a decision quite early that the economic headwinds were kind of meaning that the state of affairs would necessitate them to be more empathetic to those kind of situations. So it certainly was something that quite early on was kind of planned for. Mm -hmm. I think if you didn't do that, it would look really weird if you were kind of promoting some message of abundance and, mm -hmm. you know, just spend like there's no tomorrow. It would yep. come across as really tone deaf. I think the thing that's important to do as well and and to get the balance right is to, you know, people don't want to be overtly reminded of that fact. Yep. Yes, things are tough, but... Um, if you kind of go on about it too much, it's just a bit of a downer. So I think it's getting that balance of right where you still need to be entertaining, but to do it in a sense where, certain from Tesco's, that we're here to help, we're on your side, and we kind of get that times are tough. I think Tesco, especially, yeah, you know, they, they as a brand, always get the mood of the nation. So I think um, that was always, you know something that was that was talked about first, especially for the for the Christmas ad. But yeah, like Alex said, you you don't wanna add to those those problems. Yeah. You know, I think everyone's aware of what's going on. You don't need to sort of overemphasize it. You still wanna entertain. And um, I kind of noticed with big big supermarket brands, let's say, they have a uh, they have the, the challenge, let's say, of um, having to almost by definition appeal to everyone because it is, you know, it is the thing everyone needs. I know there are different tiers of, of grocery store that perhaps are targeted at different uh, levels of income. But generally, the big ones, you know, you Sainsbury's, Asda, uh, Morrison's, Tesco, um, all have to, you know, 
say that we are kind of here for everyone. And I, I wonder if I've noticed that in the big Christmas ads over the last few years, you know, there's often lots of very quick cutting to all the different types of, the different types of customers that might get served. Is, is that a big part of the message saying, make sure we don't rule anyone out and make sure everyone feels welcome here? Um, I don't, I don't think it's like something that's kind of in the brief that we need to, you know, tick off every person, you know, in the country. Um, I guess they tend to be sort of quite big messages. So you want it to feel quite big. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think obviously Tesco as a brand is very inclusive. So you want it to have that outtake, you know, rather than being something sort of very niche. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's it's necessarily something that uh, we're kind of making sure that every you know, sort of demographic is is kind of included. Yeah, I suppose to 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 sort of um, specify uh, specify the point a bit more. I was uh, I suppose I'm saying it's not definitely they're not trying to say we look like a luxury brand like a Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy type ad. You know, it's very much for uh, the everyman, not the you know or whatever that that term kind is. Populist, in populist, populist. Yeah, yeah. yeah in, I think you've got to know understand what the brand is and and where to kind of pitch it you know i think yeah. people know if you're being inauthentic yes. um, so i think that's really important but i think the whole issue around populism is very interesting because i think where some brands get it wrong is that they think because we need to have mass appeal you have to dumb down the idea yeah yeah and i think it's a very dangerous thing because i think you know as david ogilvy said way back in the day that consumer's not a moron, she's your wife or husband or brother or sister or whatever these days. But it's everyone you know and love and you don't yeah, talk down to them. People are a lot smarter than often that we, brands certainly and sometimes agencies, give them credit for. And I think if you just go in there and do an idea that kind of entertains and makes people smile but also delivers a simple message, then that's the way to do it rather than trying to second guess or underestimate the audience. And I think that's why British advertising over the years has been so excellent is that it does respect people's intelligence and the consumer. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think what one of the things that um, that gets across that popular side of the certainly the Tesco comms and certainly over the last three years um, is the music choice. This is going to be very close to my heart because we're music makers at Gas Music, and so we're always uh, listening first and looking uh, second, I suppose, which can be a mistake, but. The song choice is always a big deal. We've had um, uh, Oops, I Did It Again. We have had Don't Stop Me Now. And then this year it was Final Countdown. So, you know, these are not um, the kind of music choices that are like, I've got a bigger record collection. This is some niche thing. It's going to be great. <laughs> We're going right, right for the number ones. Is that, is, that part of this, is that part of the strategy when you're making the stuff? Because these are good tracks that are fun, you know? Yeah, it's basically Helen's playlist. That's <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. She's very, very uncool. Big Britney. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's all part of, you know, creating, you know, the, the ad, mm-hmm. right? Like music plays such an important role and especially for a feeling and the emotion. So to capture that um, and, yeah, you want some relevance to, you know, what the idea is and I think that all, you know, helps to, to bring it to life. I think uh, it's not... Again, I guess it's just there's always lots of conversations around music and there's so many different uh, tracks that are laid to it, but then eventually you get to the one that you're just like, yeah, you know, that nails it. Does that, is that, does that point of consensus come? Because uh, in my experience, the decision on music is one of the most uh, yeah. bitterly contested. And, uh, you know, I think it was Simon Lloyd 
after his time at Adam and Eve making John Lewis said that the joke at John Lewis is it takes six months to make the ad, three months to make it, three months to argue about the music. Um, does does that moment come when you're making a, a big asset like this where everyone's like, no, that's definitely the right one? Or is it always uh, you're kind of, someone has to go with their gut on it? I think it's, the difficulty often comes is that clients, in fact, everyone, wants the reassurance of picking the music first so you kind of get that thing out of the way. And the truth is, as much as you try and plan for that, it never quite works because the edit then arrives and there needs to be that marriage between track and picture Yeah, that's really hard to predict in advance. Yes. You can kind of have some sense of what the tone might be, but then you can fall in love with the track and then you put it against the picture and it just doesn't work. Yes. So that's often where perhaps some of the frustration comes. But I think on certainly on Tesco, there's there's a ballpark in which we play, which is, you know, as Helen was saying, populist tracks. I think there's a certain element they're playing on nostalgia as well, which is quite fun. So um, it's nice there that the music reminds people of their heyday, but also even for my kids and stuff, it's kind of tracks perhaps that sometimes they're discovering for the first time, which is yep. quite fun as well. So you have that kind of collision, which can be quite good. Do you, so, so you both have uh, children yes. separately with different people, just so I'm not missing my words. Um, <laughs> this is a shock announcement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scandal. Uh, and how old are they? What's the age range we're at? Uh, my, I've got two daughters who are 19 and 13. Okay. Four, six and eight. Whoa, okay, right. So have someone very busy, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, not that everyone isn't, but um, what I'm noticing, well, what no, my upbringing musically was probably the last of its kind in some sense because um, everyone, me and everyone before me, probably yourselves included, got their music from first your parents' collection. And now I'm guessing your kids just go and get it from anywhere. And they're, you know, well, they're listening to stuff, probably a lot of it on TikTok, maybe, you know, and, uh, but definitely Spotify and things like this. So they're consuming differently than they mm. were when, when we were growing up. And there is a, this is a circuitous question, but it is landing somewhere, I promise. With, um, with advertising and media more generally, you know, let's, uh, let's use Kate Bush running up the hill as a really relevant example recently. I feel like the music you see landing on moving image is music that was big when the decision makers were younger, people who have now lived 30 mm -hmm. years or so afterwards and now can make the stuff. Is, is, is there any sense of that that's what's going on, that the stuff that really lands is things from the 80s now, that we're seeing a lot more of that? And if that's the case, why would it be the case? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, um, I think there might be part of that, as you say, that, you know, people who were young in the 80s are now in positions of responsibility. So you kind of draw on your own history of music and then put it into things. And as you say, things like Kate Bush, there's this wonderful second wave where, I mean, I remember my daughter going, have you heard this track by Kate Bush? You go, yes, I heard that one. Yeah, yeah. It's always... And they saw it in Stranger Things. Yeah, and they saw it in Stranger Things. That's how they discover it. And then they discover Kate Bush and they suddenly, there's a whole kind of thing that happens there. But... I don't know, it was always, I think it was, I think it's always the same in different kind of ways. I mean, there's more content and more things, but I remember, you know, when I was growing up, it was, and it was kind of influenced by Levi's ads, you were discovering music from the 50s and 60s and all that kind of we thing. We have to and, talk about the Levi's ads while we're here, of course. Yeah, as well, so yeah. perhaps it's just each generation kind of discovering things 20, 30 years before. Yeah. So it's probably a cyclical thing that, that kind of happens. I mean, it's quite strange having 
being in the 80s and having bought some of that music to now seeing it kind of lead us into it all over again. Yes. And not all of that is in a good way because some of it was rubbish. Well, absolutely, yeah. And um, I thought the funniest thing happened the other day when, I mean, there's always a sort of, dis, dis, uh, everyone has a bias on this subject. You know, um, people always say the best music ever was, generally they'll say from when they were 16 to 20. Yeah, and yeah I, was, I was at a friend's house at the weekend with all our families and they'd hired um, Silent Disco. So they we had like three channels on. It was like the kids sort of seven and under were listening to, you know, like Pokemon theme tunes and, yeah. and the Minions. Yeah. And then the sort of 15, 16-year-olds were listening to like rap music and, you know, drill music. And then the my age, we were all just listening to like dance music. Yes. So it was, it was interesting to flip between the different channels. And, and it's scary, isn't it, when, because, I, I, you know... Um, it's scary when something that still seems seems young and seems vibrant and seems cool, it, it, you know, I wasn't expecting you to say dance music and I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, because, you know, people who are, uh, you know, old enough to be in senior positions and be parents, dance music was the big thing in the 90s, mm. which I'm guessing was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but then the 15-year-olds were like, oh, yeah, I thought it was terrible. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I've seen the same, my first, I've had my first bite of that um, particular uh, cherry. I've seen like, no, this isn't cool. These were crap back in the day which is that one of my 15 year old cousin uh, wanted crocs for his birthday i was like what are you on about man these are awful i thought we all agreed on this like two years ago like, oh no that was 15 years ago oh that's when you were born you've never seen these before you know that first experience of going yes i was there when it actually happened the first time and it was you know wasn't cool even then so uh, you know yeah you're kind of seeing that come through with um you know uh, I, I guess stuff like um what is it? Uh, Insomnia, Monster Mix is now like a vintage track, you know. <laughs> and um, those vintage tracks, a lot of them uh, became famous through work that was, uh, you know, done here. I, I mean, I think of Guinness uh, Surfer wasn't done here, but I know you were at AMV and we mentioned a bit of Guinness before. So, um, yeah, the point is on that one, uh, tracks becoming famous through ads, does it happen as much as it used to? Hmm. Probably not, although they kind of emerge every now and again. But then... I think back in the heyday of Levi's and even things like Guinness, you know, TV was such a dominant medium and you had that and it, and it created this enormous reach. Yes. Whereas now I think, you know, media is fragmented. People find their sources from loads of different places. So it's harder to have something that has that wide mass appeal. Yeah. Which is why things like, things like John Lewis Christmas, Tesco Christmas and the tracks that they choose is one of the main times of the year where that thing has a kind of yeah. mass reach and mass appeal. Yeah, and provoked a bit of discussion as well. Like mm -hmm. often, you know, it becomes... The John Lewis uh, ad track is now, uh, you know, but it can be a source of debate. People are like, what's it this year? All the small things, Blink-182. Mm. And that will become something... It becomes a very Marmite thing. People will either love it or, um, or not. But um, one thing that uh, I'm noticing is... Um, and again, it's one of those first markers of, uh, of, of getting a bit older. Uh, I turned 30 on Saturday, hence it's on my brain a lot. Um, is when I, I, I find a great track on um, Alter, the electronic Spotify alternative playlist. And I play it in the office and one of our juniors goes, oh yeah, big TikTok track. That's why it's big on this playlist. I was like, no, I thought I, thought the, I, thought I was influencing you, not the other way around. <laughs> a brand starting to say, can you break us on TikTok? Uh, I'm sure they are, yeah. I mean, I haven't heard it directly but um i mean i i had the same thing because my uh, youngest 13 year old is 
hugely into TikTok. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of tracks that are kind of, that I overhear or occasionally see both things that are playing on tracks from my ear and then completely new ones. Yeah. And I'm sure, as, as your experience, the, the genesis of a lot of the things that are popular is coming through that medium. And that's a that's an interesting thing because, you know, I, although you keep on top of social to mm-hmm. a degree, you know, although I'm not on it now, I, I kind of started on Facebook and then you go to Instagram, a bit of Snap, but I'm not really, I mean, I'm 55 now, so I am a little bit old. So my main interaction from TikTok is through my kids and it is it is harder to keep up with kind of trends and stuff like that, which is why you need people in agencies or all, all over those things. Otherwise you can miss it. Has that been, uh, you know, you've both been in the business long enough to basically rem- uh, have a, a two decades, two slices of decade. You've got 2000 to 2010, and then the one we just had 2010 to 2020. Did the technology feel like it was accelerating more quickly over the last decade? You know, you just uh, delineated a few generations, Facebook, Instagram, down to TikTok. <clears throat> Did that same thing happen between 2000 and 2010, or was it not moving as quickly? Uh, I don't think it was moving as quickly, and it was... It was interesting. There was a bit of a kind of false dawn where certainly there was a stage where everyone was um, predicting this kind of mass revolution mm. and that the whole industry would seismically kind of change overnight. And actually it was quite gradual. Mm-hmm. I do think, and I don't think this is just me getting old, it does seem in the last certainly five years or so, it's really starting to accelerate and you know, society and brands are much, much more comfortable now in going into social and using it as a proper kind of platform Mm -hmm. and becoming much more sophisticated. Yeah. So um, I think it is accelerating and stuff like that, whereas there was a period of experimentation and now I think we're just into, it's just business as normal now. Implementation now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many other ways you can sort of get your idea out there. Yeah, I mean, it used to be, it was just kind of like, TV and out of home and print, um, bit of bit of digital. But um, yeah, now yeah, with all the social media platforms, there's just so many other ways. And I think, um, but but you know, it's still you need a you need a good idea, right, to to go across that. Yeah, and you know what? Let's bring in a quote from uh, Sir John Hegarty while we're here at BBH, who said he he, he wrote a big sort of, um, I guess, op-ed on the industry's behaviour in general at uh, the end of 2020, I think, or at the start of last year, that said practices change, but principles remain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what uh, you were saying there, Helen, is that you know now we've got all these different places to deliver the message, which is great for media agencies, but the message still needs to be delivered. You still need to be able to say something concisely that will change someone's behavior. Uh, did it feel, does it still feel like, you know, the, um, I suppose uh, this is a definitely putting you on the, on the spot question. Do you feel like the quality of the work generally is as good as it was during this time of technological transformation? Or do you feel like the industry is more risk averse than it used to be? Uh, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because I suppose you also look back with rose-tinted glasses. So I think it's like, you know, iconic work from the past, you know, and you don't want, I think you can't recreate that, right? You got to sort of behave in the, in the conditions you're in. And I think just like there's, there's, 
lots of new opportunities, I think, and new brands. And I think, you know, with, with sort of activations and stuff like that, I think with Netflix brand that, you know, we, we do some work with here. Um, I think the opportunities there are really exciting, you know, is about sort of winning the day and doing fresh work that's never been done before, but in a different space, right? Because you're talking to sort of a different audience. Yeah. I think it's it's a very interesting question. I think if you just look at it objectively from probably just the standpoint of is advertising the cultural um, influence that it once was as a way of assessing how good it is, then I would say probably not. I think back in the day, just as we talk around in terms of music, if you broke a a song on a Levi's ad, it went straight to number one and things yep. like that. And, you know, catchphrases being spoken in the playground and, and jingles remembered. We all did uh, Budweiser, you remember? Was yeah, that? Was that? <laughs> things like that, exactly. So but I think that partly was, wasn't it? Because you, you had the captive audience mm. um, watching TV and everyone was watching these ads. Four in channels, their most of them watching programs. too. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. everyone saw that thing and everyone talked about it. So... What I think we have now is that um, perhaps the layer of cream of great work isn't as deep, but I still think there is the very best work is as good as it's ever been and perhaps better because it's more sophisticated and goes into lots of different places and is more interconnected. So I think it's very exciting, but I think as an industry, we are still coming to terms with the full scope of what we can do with all these things. And we are also, to a degree, moving from a position where, you know, as we were saying there, there was like basically four mediums. We were kind of specialists in a way. You know, when I started in the industry and for a long time until this change, you were really like a like a artisan or a master craftsman at what you did. Yep. And if you spend 20 years just making chairs, you're going to get really good at making chairs. And now you have to kind of do everything. You have to put in the wiring and the plumbing and yeah. the lighting and everything. So we've become generalists to an idea yeah. to an extent. So it is tricky. But as Helen said, you do still need to have fundamentally, and, you know, um, Heggs's point as well, you, you have to have the underlaying of a good idea that allow, the, the foundation, otherwise you're kind of screwed. You can't do anything. I think, I, you know, when... It was you were just competing with the TV shows. I guess the bar is right to be as entertaining as them. I mean, we were all in advertising, so it is about sort of in, you're always interrupting people's, you know, watching whether that's on social media scrolling through, and you need to do something to get their attention, or yeah. if it's yeah in in the middle of a YouTube show or or, or whatever. So I, I probably don't always live up to it, but you want the ads to be as entertaining as the you know, the thing that that person is actually trying to watch Absolutely. or trying to do. Yeah. So I think as long as you try and do that, you know, I think it's like if you're going to do something on TikTok, you've got to sort of do it in that, the the language and do it in an authentic way to that to that platform. Yeah. And the problem is probably when brands just try and shout at you or don't give you the credibility that you deserve or, you know, that's probably when, yeah, it's, it's more of a problem. I think sometimes I think that's dead right. I think... It's always been about attention mm -hmm. um, and cutting through, and it's still the most valuable um, currency that we trade in. I think sometimes agencies and clients to that point around, 
TikTok and the platform, because those things seem to an extent quite disposable and sometimes cheap even, people yeah. think that it's easy to do. So yes. you just go in there. And so it encourages this kind of laziness at its worst from all parties. And part of the, one of the, although I'm a huge advocate of the big idea and the platform, one of the dangers of that is that you can hide behind that a bit and think that once you set up the idea, that means you have no responsibility to then kind of master those platforms yep. and stuff like that. And you do need to be very rigorous because there is a way about how you cut through on TikTok and yep. Twitter and Instagram and all those other places. And they are all different. And you need to really get into the nuances of what those platforms are and to understand them to be able to effectively, well, get people's attention on them. You know what? Yeah, that's that's really been, that's a very relevant point. For the last week, we've been working on a, um, hence my question before, a, a big brand uh, said, can you make us a track that might go big on TikTok? And it's like the request to go viral, really, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll do our best. Point being, I was there as, you know, someone who's only just turned 30, like, right, well, what's it, what, you know, what's it going to look like? What's the, what's the end product going to be and they're saying well you know it's just for the transition video I was like what was a transition video and you know Vicky and Nathan asked me like look this is most of TikTok is this and if people doing an outfit change so musically speaking it has a single sync point that everything hinges around I wouldn't have thought like that if we were working in a 30 second space mm. or in a 60 second space you're absolutely right you need to master not only the you know uh, the the technology itself, but also the behavioural trend that the technology encourages. A, a really good example from recently, and uh, and this is uh, to Helen's point as well. We were talking about it has to be entertaining enough to compete with the other way that people are entertained on that platform. Mm -hmm. Instagram is not TV. Most of what me and my friends do on Instagram is share memes. And then one of them says, have you seen the new Belvedere advert? And sends it over to me. Have you guys seen that? Daniel Craig? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's like a meme. It's because it's, it's basically James Bond, who's very stiff, being a bit silly and dancing around. And they were like, this is pretty cool. And it's because it's like meme content, it came through and really registered. And I've been showing that to everyone. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think even though like, we're sort of talking about this, lots of you know, ways to sort of do advertising within certain platforms and there are rules and there are certain things that, you know, it's good to know. But equally, sometimes stuff can come along that totally breaks the rule and doesn't do that. I mean, I always think, even with sort of things like out of home, when it's like, oh, you've got to get there, you know, they've only got two seconds to read it. But if it's like a really good headline, then people are going to read it. Yes. And I suppose even with, you know, like the, the Belvedere, they probably weren't trying to make it meme-like it just they they made a really captivating bit of film and then that became something you know interesting that people wanted to watch and engage with and share yeah so i don't know it's, it's just something sort of not to worry too much about you know there's always certain rules isn't there like even with doing social content you know like things like oh you should show someone's face you know in the first two seconds but if it's a really good idea i think sometimes it, it can transcend well of course those. because as soon as it becomes format you make it susceptible to automation don't you it's like we'll just do that again and again you know and yeah. well if it was that simple there wouldn't be all this industry like around it you know and uh, i don't know if you guys agree with this richard huntington at sarchi's said uh, when he was on the podcast that brands can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking you can just throw some money at the problem and it will work itself out and that's kind of what we were saying about the you know with the, the generalist point before it's it's like well we, we do all these things and they're all uh 
you know, if you're trying to get people's attention, surely that just comes at a price. So, you know, it's not about mastering the craft, it's just about paying for the space. And maybe what has been learned on social over the last decade is perhaps that, you know, there is an emerging ethic of how to behave on these platforms. It sets its own rules. You can't, like, impose new rules on it. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think the Belvedere ad is is a really interesting example of perhaps how things are changing. And I was, I was reading an article by Mark Ritson on, on Belvedere. And, and it's curious because if you look at that um, particular piece of work, I've no idea what the idea is. Um, it's purely a kind of aesthetic. It's kind of weird, but watchable. But yeah, it's been hugely successful. It's kind of empty of any kind of depth or meaning or stuff like that. But perhaps that just doesn't really matter anymore. Mm. If you get that aesthetic and appeal and slight sense of weirdness, it kind of seems to work really well. So it just shows that... And I think that only works in certain categories, like, you know, fashion and perhaps premium alcohol, which it is, and and things like that. I'm not sure if you apply that to Tesco's, it's going to work. I know what you mean. But in that kind of sphere, where it's all about being everything and nothing in a world that's everything and nothing at the moment, it kind of resonates for some weird reason. Yeah. So it just shows you have to constantly, just as you think that you're on safe ground and you understand how things work, you have to once again be open-minded about, geez, maybe it is just about the aesthetic in some phases and just getting people's attention. Yeah. It's just about saliency. Yeah. Entertainment for sure, you know. BBH has been great at that over the years. The uh, Audi campaigns uh, and the Levi's ones were always uh, sometimes. The, I mean, I, I'm in the agency. It was about to uh, uh, tread on some very sort of historic toes and say, well, maybe they d- had no idea. Um, I'm thinking of like Mr. Wazo and stuff like that. But I'm sure they did. They probably all have some excellent uh, thinking that goes into them. But what I remember is a little puppet in the passenger seat doing that. <laughs> and again, it makes you smile. Sometimes it's like as long as it's well, it's not as long as it's got that, it'll be okay. But maybe it's that it has to have that at minimum. You know, at minimum, it has to be entertaining and watchable. Not at minimum, it has to be clever. I don't know. Is that? Is that uh... Well, I think Hegarty's genius in a way was um, he had a kind of real, an absolute belief in radical simplicity around things. And because he was an art director, was hugely obsessed with the aesthetic. Yep. Now, being a copywriter, that was sometimes quite frustrating because I remember him saying to me, don't worry about it. No one reads words, Alex. Yeah. It's all about the image. And you go, oh, okay. Um, just kind of disenfranchised 50% of his creative department. But <laughs> he was kind of right at the same time. Um, and I think on there was always a kind of idea that linked to the kind of product and stuff like that. But there was also make sure it's visually arresting Mm -hmm. so you cut through and absolutely simple yes and if you get those two things right then they normally work really well and he applied that principle time and time again yeah and it was hugely successful and it's like all simple things um they appear effortless but they're in cracked obviously take a huge amount of effort to get there the um uh the point you uh, just sort of uh, started off with as well, which is about respecting the consumer and not talking down to them. Uh, Dovetails was something I saw from uh, Dave Trott recently on Twitter. And it was a uh, pure art, no copy. Um, It was a poster they did where, I can't remember what the brand was, just a little, I don't know, chocolate bar kind of thing. 
uh, suited person, no head, smoke coming out. And Dave said, we used to think our consumers had enough nous to get what this meant, you know, without having to give the brand or a price or something like that. Um, but, um, you know, how do you... Uh, how do you combat that when I feel as though, uh, you know, there, there will be a time, especially times like this economically, where every client will be quite anxious to get their message out that they are affordable, for instance. Um, how do you be, uh, what was it called? Something simple, the, the Hegarty phrase? It's Well, I kind of made it, I was kind of radical simplicity. Radical simplicity. How do you do that, when, you know, when you're selling into the clients who are saying, no, no, but it has to say this, we need to make sure they hear these words. How do you, you know, how do you still try and keep it simple? I guess it's a selling question more than a creating question. I think it's a lot of that is about how you start. So that's really going back to really understanding what the business problem is that we're trying to solve. And then if you can kind of get up front and agree that, then you go into, right, then we need to answer this business problem in absolutely the simplest way mm -hmm. for it to be understood and to resonate it because people have lots of things going on in their lives as, yeah. as much as we would love them to spend all their time thinking about Tesco's and stuff. It's a minuscule amount of their time is actually spent doing so. And then having done that, you then need something really arresting to, to match that kind of simplicity. So it, it cuts through. I mean, to go back to Hegarty on, on Levi's, by the end, he used to deal in kind of triangles and mm -hmm. things. And, and on Levi's, the brief was, it was just original, sexy, irreverent. Those are the only three words that we had as a brief on each particular thing. It's very good though, yeah. And if you can reduce it to those three elements on a thing, then um, it means you're normally in a good place. Yeah. Um, I want to focus for a few seconds on you, Helen, because you've had the... Uh, everyone who's been through BBC Creative has had a slight transformation in the way that they work because you have had the experience of working within your own client, so mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. How different is that to being somewhere like here where, you know, just generally, first of all, how different is that leading the team here to leading the team in the BBC? Yeah, Um well, I think, I mean, the BBC, when I worked to BBC Creative, that was the only time I'd sort of worked in-house with a brand. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd always worked at ad agencies before. And I think, yeah, it was really amazing to have that experience. I guess, you know, you get an insight into the wider business. You know, obviously, BBC Creative was the in-house ad agency of the BBC. So we, you know, did all of the... Um, you know, advertising campaigns for everything the BBC made, but mm -hmm. you also were a lot closer to the sort of um, the BBC marketing team and then also the stakeholders, the producers and writers and directors on, on the shows. So I think you understand a lot more about the business and I think in some ways able to affect things and um, a bit more if you can, um, yeah, come, come onto a project sort of at the start rather than when they're, you know, Think, just thinking about doing the advertising. Did you have more informal sort of communication with the, you know, the the marketing people? I was going to say clients, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean <laughs> it's it's same but different, right? Yeah, yeah they, it still is kind of there. There is a bit of that 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 client um, relationship, but um, I think yeah, just this business in general. If you have good relationships, then you you get to better work. Um, what was the uh, uh, original question? The original question was, you know, you've been to BBC, how different is it here, you know, yeah. compared to there? Yeah, I mean, I think BBC Creative was sort of like part production company, part advertising agency. So there was a lot of um, stuff which, that was similar and, and some that was different. 
Um, I think that the content you're working with is very different maybe than to an ad agency. You know, if you're working on like Steve McQueen's anthology of films or, you know, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You, you know, they're, they're um, it's, it's content that people is part of culture or is, is you know, um, people want to engage with, I guess. So you sometimes don't need to put too much of an idea wrapper around it, you know, than maybe if you're selling insurance or toilet roll or something yeah. like that, where you're trying to make it something interesting that you want people to engage with, whereas people always already want to engage with that that okay. content at the BBC. Um, but I think you still want to do it in a way that, um, yeah, is, re- is really interesting and elevates it to, to you know, its potential. Yeah. Um, so it's probably a misnomer to think of it too much as like a completely different type of job, you know, because just because you're in-house there. Yeah, you know? yeah. But no, I mean, you know, I think just the BBC is a institution. It's something that we've all grown up with and it's a part of culture. So I think to work in that environment, um, yeah, is sort of invaluable. And, you know, breaking it open to both of you, um because uh, this is your first time at BBH, Helen. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, straight in at the top, not bad. Um, well, actually, I did do some work experience here okay. for a week. Wow, so it's... When I was like 21. Book, bookended Alpha yeah. and Omega, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but um, obviously, uh, you know, Alex, you were here before and uh, then went, you know, through uh, climbing the ladder and, 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 and being at the peak of uh, AMV. Um, do is there a kind of is there a kind of legacy to look after here in the way that um, I was with uh, Sophie Lewis at MC uh, Saatchi the other week and she was saying you know the only one that people really know out there is Saatchi and Saatchi and I like to sort of tell myself that people know BBH but they don't really know BBH but they do know the work everyone remembers the Lynx ads everyone remembers the Levi's ads everyone remembers the Audi ads and everyone in the industry knows the sort of royal family of BBH that, that set the whole thing up. You know, is, is there a feeling of legacy that you have to look after when you, when you come in here? Um, I think yes and no. Mm. I think a legacy can either be liberating or suffocating. Mm. And I think it's, it's really important for both of us to ensure that it's liberating. Yeah. And I think perhaps... In the past, in, in BBH, when it was the transition away from the founders, that legacy was a bit overwhelming and mm. people were constantly harking back to it and trying to live up <clears> to it. And the truth is you can't do that because it's the past and you just have to try and do your own thing and be inspired by it but not let it kind of weigh you down. So I think you know, having come in here for seven, eight months now, I think there's a really rich uh, seam of talent at BBH and part of our thing is to make sure that they feel free and not under too much pressure to express themselves and not worry about all of that stuff because yeah. it's both relevant and irrelevant and it's up to us now to forge something different and and I know that's what the founders would have wanted as well in fact I've spoken to Bogle and to Hegarty they don't want us to reinvent the past or do what they did they want us to do our own thing and to push BBH forward into a, into a new direction and if we you know, do things right and get close to where they were, then then great. But it's a kind of, it's a journey and a, and a process. And, and the main thing, and, and I think this is a wonderful thing that Helen has done since she's joined, is to constantly reiterate that, you know, the reason we all got into this industry in the first place is that it was fun. 
yeah. good laugh. Yeah. And some of that's kind of been sucked out of the industry. And actually, if people have a good time and feel relaxed, then they normally do their best work. So it's to keep on kind of preaching that kind of principle as well. So Helen, yeah. chief entertainer here. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, yeah, I think you can't recreate what was what what it what what has gone before, you know. And like, and I think it is an it is an amazing thing when you you know. I think you want um, you know when people to walk into BBH, you know, everyone who works here to feel proud. But I guess the most important thing is like what they're gonna do, you know, to in that new shape of work for the future. I think. Like for me, when, you know, sort of BBH got in touch, you know, it is an agency that has got such a rich legacy of doing great creative work. And so, you know, that is enticing and, and interesting. But the but the thing that made me come here was that challenge to be part of what is the new era of BBH. Yeah. And what is that new shape of work that we can do? Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're sort of starting to get there. Um and I think that's for everyone else who works here. You know, they're not going, oh, how do we make something like that Levi's ad or that Lynx ad? But it's just like, you know, what's um, what's the next new thing, the next, you know, exciting yeah. thing that we can make? Uh, talking about uh, fostering a positive culture here, one of the quotes that comes out to me most often relevant regarding this industry was by Drayton Bird. You guys familiar with Drayton Bird? He was uh, sort of, uh, he ran, I think he ran Ogilvy and Mather for um, uh, for a little while. I think he's about 90-something now, maybe 87. Anyway, he said, when I was at Ogilvy, you know, my job was to make sure people turned up early and stayed late. And so all I did was spend all day entertaining people and making sure that they were happy to be here. Um, how much have you seen that change pre and post pandemic, you know, being in, in leadership positions. Cause I saw someone tweet, um, do you remember the old days when you would have meetings until six and then you would go, good, now I can actually do my work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You stay till, and you would stay till 10. How has that changed? Was it really that bad before? And is it different after or? I think a lot of those things are kind of exaggerated kind of both ways. I think it's, it is different post pandemic. And what I hope is that the culture of presenteeism has broken down Yep. Um, because I, I don't think that was in, in any way helpful. Um, I hope also that we're moving into a space where the whole uh, advantage of rest is considered more and the fact that that's just as important for productivity um, as, as, as working hard and in mm -hmm. fact more so because rest is the time when the ideas have time to actually form and, and bond and things like that. And also for just people mentally and physically to recover because it's not, you can't be prescriptive about everyone because people do work in different ways. But I think by and large, creativity works best in short sprints, short yep. intense sprints, then you rest and recover and then you go again. And I think the trouble now at its worst is that you're doing a marathon formed of loads of sprints mm. and that you finish that and you're fucking done. Excuse my language. <laughs> it's all good. So, but that whole issue of burnout is something that's, that we're not through by any means, but is now becoming a topic that people are taking a lot more seriously. Right. And I think we need to continue that debate because I think that was one of the big issues around the industry that was holding us back and also you know, meant that we weren't attracting the talent into the industry that we should be. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like one of the things we've learned from the, well, all the technological developments ever, but certainly the ones that have occurred in our lifetime, 
is that, uh, you know, beware of Greeks bearing gifts because often new technology arrives that has the promise, uh, oh, well, now this will take care of all of our work and we'll have loads more time. What that does is it makes more time for more work. So, yeah, I suppose to, to your point, maybe um, in there, it, it does seem like there would be less reason to experience burnout now. But then if you've got people working from home, the you know the new thing that turned up because obviously that was supposed to be well no commute time now that's really good mm-hmm. we saved loads of time now the problem is I work in my bedroom and then I go to sleep and then I get up and carry on working in my bedroom you know yeah I think that definitely happened when we first went into the pandemic right you yeah. know you'd, you'd get up and you'd log on and then you'd be on till like the whole day and you're not having breaks to just go and chat to someone or mm. yeah or even that commute that time just to kind of listen to a podcast or something it was just yeah, non-stop on, on, on Zoom or Google Hangouts, other uh, video calls. Or Teams or other good video conferencing software um, that are available commercially. Yeah. One thing that uh, when I spoke to, I think it was when I spoke to Rory Sutherland, he said that the extroverts were always winning everything before, you know, because um, presenteeism, right? Everyone has to be in and you're graded on who's out last, you know, that's a, and you get a good mark for that. Uh, there were pros and cons to before and pros and cons to after. One of the things that I miss, and this is just on a personal note more than it is about the work, is I'm often here on Fridays doing things like this. And uh, Fridays, at the moment, London feels very, very empty. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people work from home on Fridays. And there's the mercurial things that you can't, it's hard to describe, let alone quantify, that I miss. Like the feeling of Friday, everyone's in, and then... Uh, you know, it's five, six, it's done and everyone kind of breathes out together and goes to get a beer or whatever, you know. Um, do you think, I it's guess... Thursday now. Thursday now. So it is still there, but it's on Thursday. Yeah. To be fair, I did wonder because I, when I came to an agency recently on a Thursday and the place was just jumping, I was like, you've got another day of work to do, what's going on? Is it like that here? Thursdays are a big day? Yeah, I think Thursdays are probably the new Fridays now. I mean, I mean, the danger is it goes back and then Wednesday becomes a new Thursday. This is it, yeah. And, and then there's no week at all. We always, we always fall into the trap of thinking, well, everything is just going to be perfect now. This is the cat, the, not the final solution, but this is the, the, the thing that will, yeah, there'll be no more problems after this. Yeah, um, I think you're constantly, you know, things are changing and you have to adapt. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, in here, like sort of Monday to Thursdays are, are, are busier more your sort of Wednesday, Thursdays are the busiest days. And then, yeah, Friday's pretty dead and people work from home. Okay, so I'll make sure that when I'm uh, coming uh, back to finally do my having a gas with uh, Bogle and uh, Hegarty that we do it on a Thursday at 5 p.m. Yeah, so they'll, be, it, they'll be well up for a, for a pint. So that it's rowdy, sure. yeah. Um, I, I, I sort of, a tougher, not a tougher final question, but it's one that I've been interested in and haven't really, um, I don't know, had the... Uh, uh, the, the, the courage to ask, perhaps, is that uh, a lot of uh, creatives uh, on uh, you know on, our, on the websites and selling you know selling yourself in uh, often what gets talked about is award winning work. Um, I uh, I read the you know Hutzpah and Hutzpah the Saatchi book about what the culture was like there, and um, I did a podcast with a great Northerner called Steve Harrison who used to run Wonderman. Um, and both of them, you know, the Saatchi folks and Steve, were very emphatic about the fact about reminding people that we are um, uh, we are in commerce. We are helping our clients sell stuff, not in a blunt sense, but that seems to be somewhat out of fashion as a as you know the, as the industry purpose. And the real question was, um, 
why do creatives not sort of sell themselves on the effectiveness of their work? Because, you know, most people are enthusiastic about things that solve problems for them and take pain away. And you'd think clients will be falling over themselves to get the creatives that had delivered the most results or return on investment. It's a broad question. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think when anything where you have a brief and you're trying to do a piece of, you know, a piece of work, I think, you know, you want it to do both, right? You want it to be effective and to be creatively interesting and engaging and entertaining and all of those things we talked about. I think, you know, no creative really goes, well, I'm going to answer this in order to win an award. You just want to make the best piece of work and then hopefully that that is going to be the most effective and that is going to, you know, be um, admired and awarded by peers at award shows and things like that. But I think you can't sort of go into a brief thinking... Right, you know, what's the idea that's going to win, you know, Grand Prix at Cannes or, you know, a Cannes Lion? Um, because that shouldn't be how you approach it, right? Just putting it the cart before the horse. Yeah, I think you just want to make the most exciting, interesting bit of work um, that is going to work for the, for the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, for me, the ultimate objective is fame. And um, I think if you start with that objective, then... That translates into the results. Yeah, it normally translates into effectiveness and then normally as a byproduct kind of awards. I, I think BBH has always had a very good history of effectiveness. I think at the moment we've regularly been the most, in terms of effectiveness awards and papers, the most successful and lauded agency in the UK where we've done less well or not as well, is on some of the creative awards. And there is a balance to doing those in the right way, I think. Um, I think, unfortunately, there has been quite a lot of work still that is, I kind of call it vanity publishing, that is kind of constructed to win awards and things like that. And there is a strange sub-industry within advertising where that's still a big deal. Um, I hope it's kind of declining I'm not sure the whole rise of purpose advertising has necessarily helped because I think there's been some great work in that space, but it's also led to lots of dubious examples that are less good and do seem to have been done purely for the purposes of winning awards. Yes, and not for, like, the effectiveness in the charity sector is raising money, isn't it? Yeah. And um, that uh, some, of the, some of the best work we all know is in that sector. Um, there was a, but yeah, there was a really good Adam and Eve one for... Save the Children, No Child Born to Die, 2010. Very, very good stuff. But what we're, I think, you know, uh, the consensus appears to be the best stuff. And the stuff that often gets voted best of all time is both effective and award-winning. It has to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also, you know, do your big best work on your biggest brands is a good thing as well. That's that's what we're, we're paid to shift the needle in all kinds of ways in terms of effectiveness, profits, attention for our big brands. That's why they're paying us. And if you kind of, this is the point of commerce, if you take your eye off those things and expend all your energy in small, if worthy, pro bono projects or things that are kind of speaking solely to the industry rather than to the public, then we're doing ourselves a massive disservice Mm. because that's not presenting the industry in the best light and not showing what we can do brilliantly when we apply ourselves to it, which is, you know, proper work that moves 
brands out of the pack into leadership positions. Yeah, which of course this place is famous for doing. So, um, all right, controversial final question. Um, controversial insofar as uh, I hope no one at BBH is, uh, you know, paymasters uh, uh, tell me to cut this. Favorite Christmas out of this season that isn't made by BBH? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think the Christmas ads this year are better than they have been for a while. I think there's been a couple of years when it's been slightly on the wane. I, I think there's a, a couple that have kind of cut through. I think um, just in terms of entertainment and talkability, I think you can't deny that the Asda work with the Elf has kind of cut through and got people talking. Yeah. Doesn't have a point of view, but maybe its point of view is just to entertain and give people a smile, and that's kind of yeah. I was ready enough. to be snobby about it and be like, "That's just someone else's IP," but you know, yeah, like you say, entertainment at least. They've done it quite. Well. I mean, it's a bit of a worrying trend because there's the thing with Rocky and Ladbrokes where they're kind of appropriating. Oh, now we films. can cut stuff out of films, and so yeah. I do slightly worry that the next thing is kind of Papa Dolmio and the Godfather film. But yeah, <laughs> hey, I'll raise you one. We thought Costa La Vista and Arnold Schwarzenegger for well, There you go. So, you see. <laughs> uh, that's a pitch. I want. Uh, yeah, yeah, money. So, aside from that, um, it's, oh, I, I do think John Lewis have made a bit of a pivot this year. I think um, again, it's got some talkability. I think it's. It's a sweet, charming story. Yeah. It's yeah. it's slightly quiet, but at least they've kind of recognised they need to do something slightly different. And, yeah, it's and like again, the, the anti-Elton John one. Yeah, and, it, and the ultimate test is, are people talking about it? Do people like it? And in general, that seems to be the case with those two bits of work. Come on, Helen. Uh, Let's see I if mean, you're still on the BBC payroll secretly. And, uh, no, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I would say that as the elf, I think, yeah. you know, it's you can't help but be happy when you see it. And I guess ultimately you want to feel happy at Christmas time and in this current economic climate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say that's um, well, it's like, just unashamedly fun. It's like the the reason we were talking about Daniel Craig before, isn't it? Like star quality is still a big thing and Will Ferrell's ultimate quality is he's very, very good at being silly but seeming like he's not trying to be you know what I mean he's very he's just he just fun and makes you smile to watch and so yeah I guess it was a good a good uh it was a good coup so to speak but yeah part of it was also to prove that look we can take it out of another film and put it in and out so yeah we'll see what happens with deep fakes and stuff coming down the line in the next few years um but nonetheless yeah it's um uh, you know, it's been really good to to talk to you, to have uh, so much of your time, and um, you know, let's uh, see that you know the, the the runway to Christmas between now um, now and the big day is as, as painless as possible for you. So, uh, Alex, Helen, thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much.